Every day, the Rundown Podcast keeps you in the loop about the people and places that shape Chicago. The show is possible thanks to the ongoing support of listeners like you who understand the value of our work to keep you engaged. Support the Rundown Podcast at WBEZ.org slash Rundown Donate. And thank you. What's up, Chicago? I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. Let me paint you a picture. Imagine walking outside your home in the morning, seeing your neighbors and their kids, their dogs, their lawns, and imagine that everything you want and need, the grocery store, school, work, the cafe, the gym, are all just a 10 to 20 minute walk away. And as you approach the street, instead of looking both ways, you just walk right through towards your destination without a care in the world. What's missing from this picture? The cars. For better or for worse, IRL, the cars are there. And looking both ways is actually a matter of life and death, or at least serious injury. Thanks to the car, our cities are uglier and more dangerous to get around. Our air is less breathable, and our lives are interrupted more by traffic jams. The planet on which we live, the only one we have, is warming unsustainably. And vehicle emissions contribute to at least a quarter of all CO2 emissions globally, a share of which is growing rapidly. The fortune we spend on producing, fueling and maintaining cars leaves us poorer. And the more we try to accommodate the car, the more it will come to dominate our lives. Car manufacturers want us to believe that driving is freedom. But in fact, we are trapping ourselves in an enormous prison made up of moving metal cells. That's Daniel Knowles reading from his new book, Car Mageddon how cars make life worse, and what to do about it. Right now, he lives in Chicago and works as the Midwest correspondent for The Economist. But you heard that accent. Daniel is from Birmingham, UK, and he's covered stories in South Sudan, Colombia, and Afghanistan, to name a few. So he's seen his share of transit infrastructure. Daniel says the way we depend on cars the world over is causing apocalypse-level problems. Now, I know that might seem like hyperbole, but when you put driving in the context of housing insecurity, racial inequity, and actual factual death, well, you can see where he's coming from. What happens when we all rely on cars to get around is that everything spreads out because you need space to park, you need space to move around. You know, if you look at a drive through you know, there are lots of pictures of people waiting at drive throughs in the pandemic and, you know, 100 people all waiting um, to pick up, I don't know, a soda or something. Um, You know, if they were all inside that restaurant, you know, it would be one relatively small building. But Mm. instead, if they're all in their cars, they're all spread out. And the result basically is that when we create enough space for everybody to have a car, we make everything further apart and it becomes impossible not to have a car. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what otherwise we could be doing with this space? Well, housing people is one of the straightest, <laughs> most straightforward ones. You know, yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, certainly some of um, the cities um, that are most car dependent in the U.S. And, and actually anywhere in the world, you know, but particularly places like Los Angeles or now, you know, Austin, Texas as well. You know, they've got very expensive. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult to build housing is that we require so much space for parking. And 
If your way of getting around is driving, then somebody moving into your neighborhood is a threat because it means that you're going to have to fight harder mm. for a parking space. You're mm. going to endure more traffic. And so it kind of – this reliance on cars also creates the, the terrain in which people – you know, are worried about adding neighbors to their, uh, mm. to their neighborhood. It's worried about welcoming people because they think, oh, God, there's going to be less space for me and my car. Mm. Wow. Um, growing up in Detroit, which is the Motor City, right, I believed that cars were king. That was not the immediate reaction when cars were introduced into our societies. Why don't you talk about how people reacted initially? Right. So there's this kind of idea that, you know, we invented the car and pretty quickly, as soon as everybody could get one, we all just had one and, uh, you know, and, and it was simple and, and invited. But actually, it was very controversial when cars first began appearing. Um, you know, in, in the United Kingdom, where I'm from, um, you had to have a man walking in front of your car, waving a red flag, and you were limited to four <laughs> miles an hour. And actually, a, a number of American <laughs> cities uh, had the same law um, wow. for quite a long time, copied directly across around the time of the First World War and in the 1920s, that's when faster cars really began to become available and, you know, were widely used and, and spreading into cities. And you had this lobbying effort to, to make people get out of the road. Um, and th there was this backlash, too. There was a huge fight. So there mm. were these um, big protests uh, that happened, you know, in, in lots of cities across America because so many children were being killed by speeding vehicles, mm -hmm. you know, children playing in the streets and were getting run over. And, you know, and parents went out and they protested. They, it was like mm. World War One kind of memorial um, type stuff. They, you know, it was in the aftermath of the war and they, they, they made memorials like they did for the fallen soldiers. And it took time for, and it took effort and lobbying by car owners and car dealers and uh, um, various politicians, manufacturers and so on to, to kind of create this, this rule whereby cars got priority in the streets and people did not. Mm. And so you're trapped if you don't have a car. Um, the infrastructure starts to come so that there could be more space for cars. Um, I'm really interested in how this happened in the United States with freeways. Can you get into the act that kind of pushed this along? Yeah. So, so in the United States, the big era of kind of freeway building, you know, began with Eisenhower and the Federal Aid Highway Act. And basically the federal government, you know, they, they, they wanted um, – express kind of high capacity roads to connect up the country, partly for military reasons. You know, it's the Cold War. They were worried about responding to a potential Soviet invasion. The idea was that they'd be able to move military equipment. But of course, this okay. also allowed people to get around in their cars. Yeah. What the Interstate Highway Act did was it made huge sums of federal money available to states and to cities to build highways. And it set off... Um, a sort of orgy of construction. And what was particularly acute in the United States, because lots of countries did this, but I think what was really striking about the way it was done in the United States was that these roads were driven right through into the city centers, you know? So you could drive right down into downtown Detroit or downtown Chicago on a kind of interstate highway. And that meant that they had to go through existing neighborhoods. They had people's homes had to be demolished. Mm. And the way in which that happened in the U.S. was really quite ugly. You know, it was done very often through black neighborhoods. Um, it was done, you know, as a way of almost in enforcing or maintaining segregation in many places. Mm. And this is, this is around the time when segregation became illegal. 
Right. And I think you had this kind of unfortunate coalescence of housing policy and transport policy where, you know, housing segregation was becoming illegal, particularly in the 1960s, Civil Rights Act and, you know, and, and earlier in some cities they're saying, well, we can't have formal housing segregation. Mm-hmm. But of course, a lot of there's still an awful lot of racism, there's still blockbusting. Mm-hmm. And there was the system of redlining, um, which basically said that you couldn't invest in neighborhoods where black people were moving into. And this created with the freeways, the kind of massive rush to suburbanization, because you had federal subsidies to build houses in effectively all white neighborhoods, you know, in, in new suburbs outside of cities, mm-hmm. and federal money to build the highways that would get the people from those suburbs back into the cities to get to work, mm-hmm. uh, all built through the, you know, the existing neighborhoods. And so you had this kind of hollowing out of city centers. And, and this, this didn't only happen in America, but it happened particularly disastrously in America, I think, because of that combination of kind of car infrastructure and, and you know, the history of racism here. Yeah. We know that millions of people die in car-related deaths every year all over the world. But that number is pretty astronomical in America compared with other wealthier countries. You have a chapter on why accidents happen. It's mostly the driver's fault, <laughs> but not totally. I know you, you say that we're particularly reckless <laughs> here in this country. Um, tell me about the fault question that point of it's it's driver's faults but not not totally so i think this is a it's a really important point because i i think you know occasionally i will there are drivers in in this country i find that are sometimes incredibly reckless but uh actually not necessarily here in chicago but the reason why america has got so dangerous and forty three thousand people died last year and it's been going up particularly of, of pedestrians mm-hmm. is that there hasn't been the sort of reconstructing of roads that's happened in a lot of other countries you know and, you know, where I live, for example, up in, in Wicker Park, you know, we have this, I think you call them five ways, but these uh, kind of intersections where, you know, oh, where you have corners. a diagonal. Yeah, exactly. And they're terrifying. And even the people I know who kind of regularly drive find them terrifying. I go through it on my bike. But, um, yeah. but the way in which roads are designed in America, you have very few roundabouts. Uh, you have these kind of huge wide intersections um, where suddenly the light goes green and everybody tries to accelerate through as quickly as they can because otherwise, you know, if they miss it, they're going to be stuck waiting another, you know, two or three minutes for the next green. Um, it sets up in a way that if you mm. make a mistake, and people do make mistakes, people make mistakes everywhere, but if you make a mistake, it's a lot more likely to end in a deadly way here. Um, and that that's changed in most other kind of rich countries. And so whereas sort of 30 or 40 years ago, car crashes were really deadly almost everywhere in the rich world. They're now almost, you know, uniquely deadly in rich countries in the United States. Um, something like 50 or 60 percent of people in their lifetime will be involved in a car crash that results in them going to hospital. Mm. So it's it's really high. It's quite likely to happen to you. Yeah. Why are you here, Daniel? <laughs> God, I mean, I sound so negative about America when I'm talking about this. But, uh, I, you know, I moved here um, for The Economist. And I actually think, yeah, I love this country. And I love Chicago. Chicago is a fantastic place to live. And this is my one big fight with it. Mm. You know, and actually, I, I live perfectly fine in Chicago without a car. And I walk and cycle around. And uh, there's a part of me, I think, actually, as, it, as somebody who comes from Europe, that... Almost, if you guys fix this, 
we'd have nothing to gloat about anymore, you know, because <laughs> America's economy is much stronger than than certainly the UK's and most of Europe. You've you've got uh, okay, healthcare is a is a challenge, but I mean we've got yeah, we have challenges in Europe too. But this is one where we can be very smug about saying, oh, they all drive monster trucks everywhere; <laughs> they can't walk. And um, so if you fixed it, great. God, we'd be, we'd be really stuffed. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I, I love it here. Um, despite whining about, about the cars, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the book, you talk about some of the illusions we have around this, specifically with electric and self-driving cars. I want to go back to the first illusion that you talk about, which is that if we widen the streets, if we make more roads, the things... The driving will become easier and safer. Or even that if we disallow pedestrians from walking <laughs> in the street, that things will be better. Right. And there's this kind of, you know, it is true that, that you wouldn't want people to be walking on like the interstates, on the expressways. That would be really dangerous. But the, the problem we've got into is that it is very dangerous to walk in huge parts of um, of this country. I mean... Um, pedestrian deaths have risen a lot and and some people have to walk. Not everybody can afford a car or, you know, some people aren't able to drive a car. And so there is nowhere to walk. And, and uh, particularly I wrote about something called Strodes, which is this kind of uh. type of urban development that's really um, become almost standard in, in, in parts of America. I, I think, you know, particularly if you go to the Sun Belt, if you go to very fast growing cities in you know, Florida or Texas, a strode is a sort of, it's a highway that's also a street, you know, it has maybe four lanes on either direction, but it's got businesses lining it. And it's got uh, places where in theory, you are meant to walk, maybe it's got sidewalks. And, and the problem with that is that these kind of roads are incredibly dangerous for pedestrians. And basically, if we make driving too easy, if we make the lanes wide, the result isn't that people kind of drive more safely. They just go, oh, well, roads are really wide. I can drive fit faster. Um, and it's, it's harder for pedestrians to cross. Actually, the most safe place for driving, the most safe sort of driving is the most stressful driving. Mm. Um, if you're really stressed out driving, it means that you're paying attention to the, you know, to what's around you, worried you might hit something. That's safest. If you're sort of able to relax and sit back and, uh, you know, chill out while you're driving, that's when mistakes turn deadly. Yeah. So. Yeah, you have a line in there that says if the road is comfortable for drivers, it's probably the most deadly for pedestrians or anyone else. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, there, there is a racial component here as well. Can you can you get into the places where we find these these really extremely dangerous roads, strodes, as, as right? They, well, they're they're very often um, in neighborhoods that are more likely to be you know more diverse, um, black or Hispanic in particular. Um, often for historic reasons, you know, it was the the road widening as we talked about before mm -hmm. was done through black neighborhoods. So. And the result is that, you know, the, um, the death rate um, in traffic crashes and collisions is much higher for people of color than it is for white people. Um, and it's much higher for poorer people than, uh, than it is for, for richer people. Mm. It hits the poorest people and it hits black people harder, the, the, this kind of burden of, of traffic death. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, let's, let's get into to those electric and self-driving car illusions. <laughs> tell, yeah. tell me why... Um, we think that's the answer, but it's not necessarily the answer. 
Yeah. So if we go on to kind of electric cars, yeah. you know, it is important that we do kind of replace internal combustion engine cars with electric cars. Electric cars are a lot cleaner. Um, they're a lot better for the planet. Um, however, what we also kind of need to do is drive less because first, you know, some of the problems that are not about pollution, you know, traffic crash deaths, um, the kind of spreading out of everything, that's... Um, that's that's still going to be the case with electric cars, and in mm. fact, in some ways, it might be worse because electric cars weigh a lot more in general. They they're, they're mm. heavier, and that makes them more damaging to the roads. It also makes them deadlier in a crash. Um, but the bigger problem is just that I think we're going to really struggle to electrify quickly enough. And right mm. now, emissions from cars are still going up everywhere. It's going to be really hard. This brings me to some of the the alternatives um, that you bring forth. One of them that you really talk about a lot is cycling. You, you've already <laughs> brought it up a few times in this conversation. I know the joys and benefits of cycling is something that I love to do. Let me hear it in your own words. Tell me about the ways that cycling can really serve us here. So I think the reason I'm so talk so much about cycling is because I'm optimistic. It's a thing that can really change quickly. And you know, Chicago in particular, there's already a lot of people on their bikes, particularly at the moment, you know. Um, mm. And Chicago is densely populated enough that almost every journey you need to do is within, you know, two or three miles, which you can do on a bicycle at least as fast as you can um, driving. And you don't have to deal with the parking as much. Um, and, and the city's flat. And now yes, we have electric bikes. Um, people getting electric bikes and obviously the Divi electric bikes and stuff, which are kind of expensive, but they're great. Um, but electric bikes are allow you know you to do an awful lot more than you could do on a, a kind of um a classic sort of bike um and you know you see parents with children um taking them to school in electric bikes you see people picking up um kind of enormous amounts of groceries in, in cargo bikes and i think you know the main thing that's keeping more people from cycling in this city is the lack of safe infrastructure and as you say it is getting better but there's a long way to go but i think there's a huge demand for people to be able to get around like that because, you know, you could, it's, it's not only a question of being green. It's not only a question of kind of the joy of it. It's also you can save a lawful lot of money at the yeah. moment if you don't have to have a car or if you're a family and you only, you can have one car. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, there, there are some problems. One of them you said is, is the safety thing. Um, I think about accessibility when it comes to, to cycling. I mean, what, where does, you know, say transit fit into the puzzle here? Like what, what are we looking at as far as solutions um, when cycling isn't an option? Well, I mean, transit is vital. And the other thing I do write about in the book is that, um, you know, buses are, are something that we, we kind of neglect. Uh, I mean, it's very important, you know, to have trains and to have all, as many forms of transport as I think is possible. And um, yeah. particularly in this city, the fact that you have got this kind of, you know, the, the elevated system, it's a real boon to the city it's vital mm -hmm. i i use it a lot and and the fact that it's kind of struggling with with you know staff shortages in the moment i think it's a real worry um but buses are something that can actually be used a lot the main reason why people don't like using the bus is that they're they're slow they get caught in traffic mm -hmm. and if you can make them faster you know a real easy win for not only not only Chicago, but a lot of American cities, but particularly Chicago, is that if you have dedicated bus lanes and the buses can move faster, you can 
for free, pretty much. Um, you know, each bus can go on its route quicker, it gets around quicker. You get twice as much kind of frequency. If say it goes twice as fast, you get twice as much frequency from that bus. Mm. And if people don't feel like they have to wait, if they're not worried about kind of standing on a street corner for fifteen minutes, mm-hmm. they're much more likely to get the bus, and then it can connect to the trains. And and the great thing about the city actually is that you know it's a grid. On this, yes. this city was built on a streetcar grid, and up until kind of the 1950s, you could get anywhere on two streetcars pretty much, and now you still mm. can by two buses. But those buses are slow, and the reason they're slow is that they get trapped in traffic with cars. Mm-hmm. And even though one bus can have you know 60 people on it and occupies the same amount of kind of road space as you know two cars. Um, they are stuck with all of these kind of cars, all of which have one driver in them. And so, <laughs> and where, where there are bus lanes, like uh, along Chicago Avenue, for example, the buses move fast and people use them. So I kind of think there's a lot to be done yeah. just making the, the transit system better that need not cost anything, but it will make, uh, it will annoy some drivers. So that's where the kind of, it will cost political capital. Yeah. <laughs> right. So things, the things that you're talking about, these changes, people, people are going to be mad. Right. They, they're going to get angry. They're going to um, they're going to get worked up. The people, political capital, as you talked about, people with money and power, they're going to wield that power to keep the cars rolling. Um, you talked about some places where the people got past all of that and then they were happier. Um, can you give me some examples? What effect does all of this have on our emotions and, and where have you seen that? So people do get angry. At first. And, and drivers get, get angry. And the reason why they get angry when you make these sorts of changes is that driving is already stressful. And there's lots of academic studies that show how much people actually sort of get are made miserable by driving. And, I, I, and so there's always a backlash from drivers because they begin to think, the, you know, oh, if you close this road, I'm going to have to take a detour. I'm gonna, it's going to be longer and more stressful to drive. So it's, it's sort of unpopular because people sometimes struggle to imagine that the alternatives. But if you look at you know, what's happened where I moved here from London um, or Paris as well. I write about Paris in the book. Um, there have been these big kind of changes in the last 20 years, really. And, and um, you know, a lot more people used to drive in, in those cities 20 years ago. And the it began in London with a congestion charge. So you had to start to pay a fee if you wanted to drive uh, into the city centre. Um, in Paris, they haven't done that, but they closed one of the kind of expressways that went along the um, the river and uh, and then they closed it on the other side of the river and when it that kind of started it was really unpopular um, there were these huge kind of fears of oh you know people can't drive the businesses are going to fail you know that nobody's going to be able to get around that it's going to make everybody miserable there's going to be more traffic on the roads that are kept open that sort of thing and it it didn't really materialize and what happened you know was people began to switch because they saw, oh, hang on a minute, you know, now there's there's a safer option to, to take my bike or the bus is going faster. And it's different in different places. But fundamentally, yeah. as the cars begin to retreat, other forms of transport get easier. And so people switch to them. And nobody ever really wants to go back. Daniel Knowles is the Midwest correspondent for The Economist. His new book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It, is out now. Daniel, thank you. Thank you ever so much for having me on. 
And that's it for today. Thanks to Justin Bull and Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and to Ariel Van Cleve for editing the show. Haley Bloomquist was the engineer for this episode. Our theme music is by Louis Weeks. And we love hearing from you. Email us with your questions, your thoughts, what you want to hear on the show at therundownpod at wbez.org. I'm Erin Allen. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 